Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Welcome everyone to Heritage. Um, Thanks for coming out. Uh, And thanks to everyone tuning in online as well. Uh, Today's panel is entitled, Provocatively, Will America Ban Hate Speech? That this is still an open question here makes our country truly exceptional. We are only only one of a few countries that does not regulate speech on the basis of content. Excuse me. In nearly all developed countries, some some ideas are judged too harmful, vulgar, or hateful to be spoken in public. While our right to free speech under the law remains largely unabridged, the practical penalties for voicing opinions outside the mainstream are ramping up. Uh, just ask James Damore, fired from Google for penning a controversial internal memo. Brandon Icke, former CEO of Mozilla and Firefox, fired for contributing to a pro-traditional marriage group. Or Alex Jones, banned for life for tw- from Twitter for myriad speech crimes. Fortunately for those entering the workforce, colleges are taking it upon themselves to teach students firsthand that controversial speech has serious consequences. Today, visiting speakers are often met by mobs, shouted down, or disinvited from campuses altogether. While companies uh, have legal rights uh, to fire employees and ban content as they choose, uh, and no speaker has a right to a college dais, these developments carry, uh, carry grim portents. The extent to which necessitous men are not free men uh, the new necessities employees face should concern us. To the extent that the public square has been replaced by social media platforms, we should hope all are allowed a fair hearing on these sites. And to the extent our colleges and universities are forming the next generation of students, uh, or excuse me, of citizens, the civics lessons they learned there will soon affect us all here. Here to discuss uh, the future of free speech in America, we have Nadine Strassen, she is a John Marshall Harlan Professor of Law at New York Law School and former president of the American Civil Liberties Union, a position she held from 1991 to 2008. She remains on their National Advisory Council. Her book, Hate, Why We Should Resist It uh, with Free Speech, Not Censorship, is available right there, but also outside. <laughs> it's now available on Oxford University Press. Arthur Millick uh, is the Associate Director um, uh, at the Heritage Foundation's B. Kenneth Simon Center for the Center for Principles and Politics. I should be able to say that uh, more cleanly since I'm also employed by CPP. <laughs> he, he conducts research on the principles of the American founders, especially their views on freedom of speech and the press. Uh, he's published widely on these subjects. And then Scott Yaner at the end, last but certainly not least, he is a professor of political science at Boise State University. He is the author of Family Politics, The Idea of Marriage in Modern Political Thought, uh, and as well as a wide range of scholarly articles exploring the political theory of John Locke, 
David Hume, and Alexis de Tocqueville, among others. He also has the shared insight of personal experience, having recently been a target of campus outrage himself. Um, and with that, we'll begin. Well, thank you so much, John, for that cordial introduction. I'm delighted to be back here at the Heritage Foundation, such a prominent conservative organization. And I am here, happy to be here, not despite the fact that I am a proud, bleeding heart liberal, uh, but precisely because of that fact. And that really ties into the theme of my book. I need not tell this audience or any uh, body who's been paying attention to our politics and culture that it is riven by divisiveness and tribalism and charges and countercharges of hatred for all manner of ideas that people at various points on the political spectrum consider hateful and hated. So I welcome the opportunity to speak to all audiences about what I profoundly believe and am convinced by the evidence that I studied for my book that all of us, no matter who we are, no matter what our ideological beliefs are, have an equal stake in continuing to defend uh, the core bedrock principle of our free speech jurisprudence. John alluded to it. The courts call it content neutrality or viewpoint neutrality, that government must remain neutral with respect to the content, the message, the idea, or the viewpoint of speech, and must allow that to uh, flourish regardless of how hated or loathed or feared or upsetting uh, even a large segment of the public, including powerful politicians, might consider that content to be. Uh, rather, the court has said that government may uh, suppress speech only in accordance with what I think is best summarized as the emergency principle when in a particular context Right, So we're getting beyond the content of the speech to look at the context in particular facts and circumstances, speech, including speech with a hated or hateful message, directly causes certain serious, imminent, specific harms, and those harms cannot be averted in any way short of censoring the speech. The Supreme Court over time has crafted a number of uh, categories of speech that satisfy that appropriately demanding, but not at all impossible, standard of the emergency test. One example is a genuine threat where the speaker intends to instill a reasonable fear in the mind of the person or persons to whom the speech is targeted, that they will be subject to harm, not threat in the loose way that that term tends to be used on many college campuses. Oh, I feel threatened by something that Scott wrote, or I feel threatened by the fact that Arthur is going to be speaking, or Nadine is going to be speaking on my on my campus, for that matter. Now, it is true that speech certainly does, or at least potentially can cause harm, short of satisfying that appropriately strict emergency test. Uh, however, 
infer, based on long experience in this country and around the world for that matter, it is clear that more harm is done by allowing the government to have power to punish speech that does not satisfy the emergency principle uh, than is done by allowing that speech to go forward and to be countered instead through education, through uh, counter speech, through other non-sensorial measures. And let me back up that assertion. Uh, before the United States Supreme Court adopted the emergency test and strictly enforced the content or viewpoint neutrality principle in the first half of the uh, 20th century, it continued to enforce a much looser test, which is the one that is reflected in hate speech laws around the world. And that is usually called the bad tendency or harmful tendency test. Uh, speech that might indirectly, potentially, perhaps at some future indefinite time cause some harm, or speech that immediately causes uh, a harm that is serious, but not one that the Supreme Court now allows as a justification for punishing speech, namely emotional harm or psychic harm. Uh, when those looser standards were enforced, government basically had open-ended, unfettered discretion to pick and choose which ideas it disliked. Because when you think about it, as Oliver Holmes put it best, every idea is an incitement, right? Every idea. Certainly ideas about the most important controverted issues of public policy can lead people to adopt them. And once people have an idea, that might lead them to act. And the action might be violent or subversive or otherwise dangerous. So under that loose, bad tendency test, and also uh, at the same time allowing speech that caused emotional distress, psychic distress, to be punished, it was precisely under that rationale that, among others, Every opponent of government policy, every advocate of law reform was punished. Uh, Anti-war protesters were punished, certainly socialists and communists, uh, but those on the other end of the political spectrum, uh, fascists and others on the, on the right end of the political spectrum. Every advocate for civil rights, women's rights, uh, birth control. Uh, this is why Martin Luther King wrote his famous letter from a Birmingham jail. So it is no coincidence that the emergency test was forged in the cauldron of the civil rights movement. In the 1960s, the Supreme Court unanimously rejected the harmful tendency test and adopted the emergency test, which has been essential not only for individual liberty, but also for our democratic republic. Um, as the Supreme Court said, and here I'm going to uh, look for the exact language because it's so eloquent, speech concerning public affairs is more than self-expression. It is the essence of self-government. And I would also maintain, based on my examination of uh, the record of countries that only enforce the bad tendency test and do allow hate speech short of the emergency standard to be punished, 
uh, that that is as dangerous for equality and dignity and inclusivity and diversity, societal harmony, as it is for individual liberty. In other words, all of the goals that are asserted to be furthered by censoring hate speech, when you look at how the laws are actually enforced, not surprisingly, they end up being ineffective at best to promote those wonderful goals, which I also subscribe to, uh, but counterproductive at worst. My book gives many, many examples. Regardless of where you fall on the political spectrum, you would be shocked uh, to see the kinds of speech that are being censored by otherwise comparable countries uh, throughout Europe, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, speech by uh, not only candidates for public office across the political spectrum, speech by people who are actually holding political office, uh, speech by mainstream as well as non-mainstream publications, uh, speech by religious leaders, indeed even preaching from their own holy texts, have been prosecuted for hate speech, uh, artistic and cultural expression. Uh, so, uh, you know, when we talk about is the United States going to remain the way we are, uh, I certainly hope so. Uh, number one, the sensorial impact on liberty and the adverse impact on democracy and equality and all these other goals would be incalculable. And, and this is why, um, and I, I was very surprised to learn this. I'm proud of American exceptionalism if we're exceptional in defending liberty and justice uh, for all. Uh, but I was surprised to learn that we are not, in fact, exceptional in the sense that there are many individuals, in particular human rights activists and leaders in countries around the world that do censor hate speech, in international agencies around the world that have argued that other countries should not enforce their hate speech laws and should move more in the direction of the United States approach, not because they have the First Amendment or any counterpart to it. They do not. But purely in terms of the practical policy strategic advantages of our system. Of course, we have enormous ongoing problems of hatred and discrimination and stereotyping. Uh, but based on the evidence, I believe that we have made more progress and will continue to make more progress, not despite the absence of censorship, but precisely because of it. If you look at the record in countries uh, that do strictly enforce hate speech laws, including Germany and France, which uh, outside of the Middle East have more strict hate speech laws than any other country in the world that are strictly enforced. Uh, this is a well-informed audience. You know that there have been rising surges of not only discrimination, but discriminatory violence against all kinds of minorities in those countries anti-Semitic violence, anti-Muslim violence, anti-refugee, anti-immigrant, anti-Roma. Um, indeed, uh, especially poignant to me as the daughter of a Holocaust survivor in Germany. Angela Merkel recently felt moved to appoint a commissioner 
of anti-Semitism for the first time in German history. Uh, that's how horrific the incidents of hateful uh, violence against Jews, among others, has been. So uh, not only do I believe that the United States should continue to uh, be exceptional in defending liberty, which does also uh, propel democracy and equality, but I'm hopeful that we will persuade other countries to follow in our worthy footsteps. Well, uh, thank you so much to John York for hosting uh, this event, and I just want to say that it's very nice to share a stage with people that I admire. Um, American conservatives and liberals so far have admirably opposed the push to outlaw offensive speech in America. Yet while we fight, we, are too rare, we too rarely dig into the arguments that advocates use to restrict it. What I'd like to talk today about uh, is briefly the purpose, uh, according to the founders, of the freedom of speech, and then I want to get into some of the arguments or justifications that advocates for the restriction of speech uh, use. Uh, we should always remember that uh, in the founding, um, there were two broad purposes of speech. The first is for philosophy and science. In other words, the pursuit of the truth. It should be unrestricted. And the second is self-government. You cannot have a free people uh, that governs themselves that doesn't have the freedom of speech. And even though the public square during the time of the founding was in, in certain ways more sanitized than today, uh, nevertheless, um, the Constitution ensconces the right to absolute free speech for uh, members of Congress and uh, uh, because of the critical nature of being able to rule yourself. Um, and this is the regime that we're trying to defend. Um, the freedom of speech also informs citizens' characters. Uh, it makes them more rational and, uh, dare I say, more manly. It means being capable of speaking freely and making judgments about political matters. It means being capable of persuading others and having fellow citizens capable of being persuaded. Uh, as we know, outlawing so-called hate speech may be on the horizon, uh, though it's not our destiny. Uh, Nadine has talked a little bit about uh, what's taking place in Europe, and I just want to point out a couple of details to complement what Nadine has said. Um, in Europe, they're at a loss for how to define hate speech. It means everything and nothing. Um, it can be, according to the European Union's Agency for Fundamental Rights, incitement to hatred. But given this incredible prerogative, they even define it as, I'm quoting, uh, hate speech can also be concealed in statements which at first glance may seem to be rational or normal. <laughs> um, so what kind of speech uh, should be banned? Nadine has said a little bit about this, but it stands uh, 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 to remember that it's um, racist speech, anti-trans speech, homophobic speech, anti-religious speech, anti-immigrant speech. In Belgium, it even includes sexist speech, which is defined as any gesture or action intended to express contempt towards somebody because of their sex. What are the punishments? Well, uh, up to 4,000 euro fine. I think you could be punished for the use of that word manly. <laughs> <laughs> or for making an argument against restricting hate speech. Um, homes have been raided. There have been arrests. Uh, our friend and neighbor Canada to the north also has laws like this on the books. I'm going to quote the law. Uh, any notice, sign, symbol, emblem, or other representation indicating discrimination 
or an intention to discriminate is punishable. Now, uh, things, as we see, are different uh, in the United States. We're allowed to have this uh, panel peacefully. Uh, it's partly thanks to uh, the Supreme Court. Uh, it's partly because a majority of Americans still very deeply believe and cherish this right. Um, but uh, the real battleground for the future of speech is taking place right now on college campuses. And you shouldn't think that these are small communities somewhere with kids that will grow up one day and change their minds. That need not be the case. Uh, the universities fundamentally transformed the United States in the 60s. All of the, uh, uh, the, the, the regime change that took place has its origins in the universities. And the question is, will public opinion eventually follow that or not? Um, so to leave uh, Canada aside, as I promised, I want to talk about some of the arguments that advocates for the restriction of speech uh, make. Uh, I think that there are two. Uh, the first is that they claim that offensive speech brings unquestionable harms, physical harms. What are these? Well, it leads to depression, drug abuse, self-hatred, high blood pressure, you name it. Every imaginable ill or pathology can be blamed on external causes. And as I mentioned before, even concealed statements, let alone overt words, to discriminate or bring dishonor to a group can bring about these harms. The second big category that I want to focus on are claims about uh, this uh, vague and mysterious word, uh, dignity. Uh, advocates for restriction claim that hate speech harms uh, dignity. Um, here's part of the argument. Uh, this means that citizens cannot have full participation in a political community unless they feel fully welcomed, even celebrated. You might think that we all have voting rights and the power of speech to persuade our fellow citizens. But the theory goes, a minority cannot speak to a majority because of the power differential. In other words, there is no reasoning with a majority because reason is connected to power. As such, perhaps a majority must be compelled. So what is dignity? As I said, everybody speaks about it. Nobody knows about it, and what I think it is is an attempt by political theory professors to find something respectable in human beings outside of deferring to religion or reason. Uh, one of the best definitions, I think, comes from a very famous professor named Charles Taylor, uh, who says that dignity is the potential – this is his definition – dignity is the potential for forming and defining one's own identity. Uh, to deny anyone – this kind of self-creation is morally wrong, he says. As such, all self-created identities are fundamentally of the same value and can demand equal respect. Just what this identity is is difficult to say, uh, though we know that it keeps changing and it can always change. And uh, here I want to quote another famous professor. This always happens on the level of the universities. Um, this is a, a famous professor named Richard Rorty, another theorist on this topic. And he says, no past achievement, not Plato's or even Christ's, can tell us about the ultimate significance of human life. The future will widen endlessly. Experiments with new forms of individual and social life will interact and reinforce one another. Individual life will become unthinkably diverse and social life unthinkably free. That would be the, the, the fullness of dignity in practice. Now, the critical component, and this I want to emphasize, the critical component of this view of dignity is that without others recognizing 
your identity. There cannot be self-respect. Human beings are all frail beings who must live through the eyes of others so that they can respect themselves. In fact, others must be made to respect them as they would like to be respected. This becomes the new standard. Without protection from harsh words, you cannot be your authentic self. This means that all identities must not only be tolerated, but must be celebrated, and any denial in speech may constitute discrimination. Now, there are two very important qualifications to this. Um, the first is that I, I think almost all, maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I think almost all of the theorists agree on, on, on this point, that um, restricting speech applies only to the speech of a majority. They've moved in that direction. Yeah. Because yeah. uh, they recognize that otherwise it would be their speech that is disproportionately silenced precisely because they lack majority power. Right. In other words, the public square becomes wide open to cultivating hatreds and falsehoods against the majority. In this regime, all angers and resentments come to be encouraged and even honored. It becomes empowering to be a victim. Moreover, here's the second qualification. Moreover, in this view, in this new speech regime, now I'm quoting, bigoted factual claims that are fundamentally defamatory are not tolerated. Factual claims that are considered bigoted are not tolerated. One cannot, therefore, speak about matters of public policy, even if it's factual. Certain issues of public policy must simply be pushed aside, as must be, I think, uh, the principle of self-rule. The radical goal behind this, uh, it seems to me, is to silence the human capacity for judgment uh, and therefore reason. The law must target that faculty. And the honest advocates uh, come very close to admitting this. I'm quoting, coming to grips with hate speech does pose serious problems for a society committed both to equality and to individual freedom. They know that there's a conflict. In other words, if you want a nation devoted to equality defined not as natural rights, but as equal self-respect, I don't think that you can have political liberty. And this is a choice which some advocates, as I said, are willing to make. Now, uh, leaving aside the contemporary theorists, there's a more radical predecessor to all of this who appears to want similar ends but advocates different, uh, harsher means. And that is the uh, false wise man of the 60s named Herbert Marcuse. Um, his argument, the spirit of which endures today, is essentially this. America practices what he calls indiscriminate tolerance. We, both, we tolerate both good and bad. The good is autonomy, and the bad is everything that represses it. A, liberate, a liberating tolerance, then, would mean intolerance against movements from the right and toleration of movements from the left. I'm quoting him. That was a quote. America protects the party of hate, by which he means conservatives. The new inherent tolerance should restrict their deeds as well as their word. So uh, why are such harsh means necessary? You could ask Marcuse. Because, he claims, America's form of toleration um, passively protects, quote, entrenched and established attitudes and ideas which impede liberation, end quote. Liberation cannot be gradual, left to gradual improvements over time because society is rigged in favor of an establishment which protects the status quo. This establishment subjects citizens to indoctrination, which in its subtlety is no longer recognized as indoctrination. Americans have a false consciousness, in other words, 
Given these circumstances, it is necessary to reverse the status quo by, quote, getting information slanted in the opposite direction, end quote. Rational argument is insufficient because no establishment is willing to unleash its power. A subversive majority must be developed whose power will include, quote, the withdrawal of toleration of speech and assembly, end quote, from groups and movements opposed to real liberalism, whatever he means by real liberalism. Uh, this will be done by taking over, quote, educational institutions, which will now teach uh, that history was the development of oppression. I mean, he has won. Um, all these things should be done for the sake of equal autonomy for all. As for the institutions, policies, and opinions which stand in the way, quote, suppression of the regressive ones is a, is a prerequisite for the strengthening of the progressive ones, end quote. The project of the new tolerance must begin by stopping the words and images which feed this false consciousness. Americans rarely still today use the word false consciousness, but the kind of fanaticism that Marcuse unleashed on account of his radical arguments is still present with us today. I want to conclude uh, by turning to the founder's thought to suggest the alternative to these radical views about dignity. For America's founders, human dignity is based on the fact that we have a rational faculty, which means especially that we have forethought which in turn means that we can be held morally accountable for our actions. Our capacity to think and to control ourselves is one of the essential arguments for natural rights. Being endowed with natural rights means that we can govern ourselves and deliberate on the common good. Of course, we should be kind to our fellow citizens and not gratuitously demean them. But restricting offensive speech will not bring about the utopia of equal self-respect, but will push us deeper into the politics of resentment and the corresponding backlash against it. The future of speech in America depends on the majority of Americans continuing to believe that free speech is a sacred right and that self-government is the highest political good. Thank you. Hi, I don't know if I'm bad in cleanup, but I'm last. And um, uh, my goal is to give a glimpse of what America with a hate speech regime would look like and how hate speech laws would compromise many important aspects of American life. Now, how can we know what a hate speech society would look like? I think there are two important sources for our knowledge of this. First, as Nadine does in her book, we can look at foreign countries such as Great Britain and France for how speech, how hate speech laws have affected their political climate. The results are sometimes quite surprising, and they show that the shoe is not always on the left foot. In France, for instance, those who protest investment in Israel have been sanctioned and fined under hate speech laws because they discriminate on the basis of religion and national origin. Still, these laws are used to stifle debate on important cultural and political issues. These laws cultivate resentment in some and fail to raise the victims on the other hand. A second method, the one I will adopt, is to examine what hate speech laws would look like in America by looking at the American universities, the place where the ethic underlying hate speech laws governs most explicitly. Universities are the place in American life where the left has created an environment sanitized by a hate speech ethos. And many campuses have adopted hate speech codes and built an apparatus creating what they believe is a safe campus. Looking at how many of the American universities are runs provides a window to the world of an America where hate speech and its ethic come to rule. First, some perspective on what has happened to the universities. 
Universities have long been repositories of great works of literature, philosophy, theology, and art. Later, the research university component was added to it. Uh, American universities united uh, in their mission of handing down the great thoughts and debates of the greatest minds and in producing knowledge on the basis of modern scientific discovery have been around since about the middle of the 1800s. Um, this melding of the liberal arts university and the research university uh, prevailed until roughly the 1960s. There had always been worries from diverse thinkers that the research or scientific arm of the modern university would overwhelm the liberal arts arm. And this is not exactly how the transformation has gone down. Changes to the modern uh, university in the past 50 years have prepared the way for hate speech codes, and the most important of these changes is the corruption of the liberal arts arm of the university with its emphasis on diversity. This new vision of the part of the university on the liberal arts mission had gained momentum in the 1980s, and Alan Bloom diagnosed it famously in his Closing of the American Mind. Chief among Bloom's observations was that the canon of great thinkers and questions had been shunted aside in the modern university curriculum in the name of diversity. Less Plato and Tolstoy, more gender studies and black studies. Thus, the liberal arts mission of the university became a new mission to promote diversity, and the opportunity to enrich the souls of students was being missed. There were other aspects of this emphasis on diversity, the hyphenated racial group references, marginalizing uh, those who taught dead white men, affirmative action hiring and admissions. It was during this time that hate speech codes were first proposed and adopted on some university campuses, including in my home state of Wisconsin. And this was not a coincidence. But the hate speech advocates at that time overplayed their hand, and many of those codes were repealed through court action and through insignificant support on campus or I should say, less than sufficient support on campus. The system of diversity we now have has been expanded and embedded in the university in the past 10 years. Universities more and more are built on the view that all disparities between sexes, races, orientations are traceable to oppression and discrimination. Finding and rooting out these disparities and the oft unconscious disparities is now the aim in admissions, hiring, curriculum, administration, and those charged with maintaining college climate. One can see it in a thousand ways on campuses. The celebration of diversity in advertisements, the affirmative action in hiring, more disciplines are infused with the disparity equals discrimination assumptions and never question those sacred assumptions. In fact, questioning those assumptions equals a hate crime on some campuses. The salient features of this system of diversity on campus are these. Student bodies are broken into those with favored oppressed identities and those with dis disfavored oppressor identities. Policies are made favoring those victim identities, making them feel welcome, more prevalent either through admissions or hiring. The propagation of the assumptions of victor, victimhood and oppressor to administrative bodies who then make rules and distribute honor on their basis. The creation of a well-staffed diversity apparatus to identify and root out oppression on campus. 
This is where the need for hate speech codes come in. Because the assumptions counter to the victimhood narrative threaten the identity of those victims, supposedly. Administrators on campuses come to defer to students and other community groups who can identify victims and oppressors. What began as an effort to expunge Shakespeare from English ends with farming out hate speech reporting and prosecution to the most fanatical students, faculty members, and interested administrators. Now, it makes sense that hate speech comes late to the diversity game on campus. What cannot be accomplished through bureaucratic means such as hiring, mandatory training, and admissions might be accomplished through academic mobs, deplatforming speakers, and making life for dissenting professors intolerable. This is what happened at Evergreen State, quite famously, but in many other cases as well. This mob-like attitude, however, is unseemly and likely to bring universities into disrepute and perhaps defunding. Enrollments may decline. Hate speech codes are a more formal, respectable, and honorable way of closing the loop on the system of diversity. Dissenters will no longer be subject to mobs. They will be subject to law and formal processes, where the process is the punishment. What cannot be accomplished through admissions, hiring, curriculum, administration, and training can then be accomplished through hate speech codes. The system of diversity is designed to mark out acceptable range of thought and action on campus. Racial and sexual victimologists will police the boundaries. Now, I have run up against this system of diversity myself. In uh, summer of 2017, I published a first principles piece for Arthur and the Simon Center entitled Sex, Gender, and the Origin of the Culture War. This piece sought to explain how we got where we are in America's culture. I still remember sitting with them as we went over the idea for the piece, and they wanted me to explain where transgender ideology comes from and how it relates, if it does, to other aspects of the culture war. Feminism, I argued in the piece, is the origin of transgender ideology. Feminism separates sex from gender. So does transgenderism. It sets the, you know, bar for it. Now, the publication of this piece, a pretty scholarly, wonderful piece, um, <laughs> caused a controversy on campus where the students put posters up saying that I had blood on my hands and demanding that the university fire me. <clears throat> Colleagues in the faculty senate accused me of hate speech, and a motion was made to have me investigated for a violation of the campus's shared values and also for engaging in hate speech. That motion was tabled. And all in all, my episode resembles many other faculty mobs attacked by social justice warriors in the past few years. I am a tenured, full professor with a history of perfectly adequate job reviews. No official, was, no official action was taken. But my case, happening in a pretty conservative state of Idaho, shows that certain things are going to be off limits under the hate speech regime. Would you set out to investigate the decline of the family or criticize transgender ideology if you were a scholar today? Certainly some dishonor and unpleasantness are going to be par for the course. What if there were a robust hate speech code on campus where the social justice crowd defined the parameters of acceptable debate? 
the effect of hate speech codes would be to take the study of the family off the table as an acceptable topic for academic discussion, unless one towed the leftist line on it. Um, I would be sanctioned under hate speech regime for my writings on August Comte, Georg Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel, and others. In addition to the family and other related issues, studies on immigration, affirmative action, Iran policy, and many other topics on race, touching race, Islam, sex, gender, would be compromised. Even teaching the great thinkers, such as Rousseau, Tolstoy, Montesquieu, is risky, unless one is also willing to condemn them with one's breath. Because these thinkers articulate too many ideas that contradict the prevailing diversity ideology. The result is to take the disfavored and dishonored canon entirely off the table as a potential source for wisdom and reflection. Think also about the effects of hate speech codes on student life. Would Christian groups be allowed to meet, maintain membership under that circumstance? Now let's go back to the distinction between the research and the scientific arm of the university and the liberal arts arm. The traditional worry was that the scientific way of knowing would overwhelm the liberal arts commitment. Um, But today's system of diversity, with its origins in the liberal arts, now poses the threat to the scientific arm of the university. The system of diversity is imperial, and it will corrupt the sciences. It will do to engineering what it has done to English, ceteris paribus. We have seen this taking place already in many ways uh, in the criteria for entering medical school and how the NIH and the NSF evaluate proposals in light of diversity criteria and in the hiring practices on universities. Now, the best people may flee academic departments for industry as long as industry is not also affected with the same imperialism. When I was going through my controversy, several tenured professors from rather prestigious universities wrote me to express worries that their medical research and biological research would run up against transgender ideologues because it was grounded in the intractability of sex. If transgender ideology imposes its views that gender is a pure social construction and that no assumptions about human life can be made on the basis of maleness or femaleness, then scientific discoveries in the area of human biology will become politically incorrect. In several ways, therefore, the hate speech movement could could compromise scientific discovery. Now, I believe that there are many, perhaps most faculty members and many more students who see the outer reaches of this system of diversity as a travesty to the twin missions of the school. Yet, most of those who are tenured will not resist it. Tenure is no protection to the system of diversity because for most people who have tenure, they become lovers of ease instead of people willing to stick their necks out. Tenure will not encourage most faculty members to limit the system of diversity at its core, and they will just put their head down and get to work. Hate speech codes are designed to make opposition to the imperial system of diversity criminal or subject to civil suit. One will not lose honor on campus. One will lose one's place on campus. As a student, one would lose the possibility of being educated, and one would have a black mark on one's resume or internet profile forever. Best to keep quiet, keep your head down, and get the job done. In the prosecution of a few well-placed academic resistors, 
would suffice to send the sheepish, um, sheepish among the tenured faculty across the country the message about the price for contradicting the system of diversity. With such examples in mind, it will be best to keep one's head down and just finish one's research on the reproductive habits of the platypus. First they came for the conservatives, then they will come for the old liberals who love truth and tradition and free speech, then they will come for the biologists. If boardrooms come to resemble the universities, I expect that the range of acceptable political debate will further narrow. Prosecutions will become great causes of strife and American scientific innovation will fail to realize many of its gains. We are seeing this arising on the campus already. It will spread to the detriment of freedom, prosperity, national cohesion, and technological innovation. If that is not the system we want, then lines need to be drawn on the universities sooner rather than later. Thanks. Before we open up for questions from the audience, uh, if any of the other presenters have uh, response to what they've heard. I'd like to make a comment in support of the bleeding heart liberal, or maybe the better de definition is, or label is classic old school liberal, uh, <laughs> because I do fully enthusiastically champion the goal of diversity, but or and I define diversity in the full panoply as extending to not only who you are, but also how you think, what your ideas are. And I know from scientific, social scientific studies that academic freedom, the search for truth, pedagogy, democracy, in my view, are all enhanced by every form of diversity and diminished by the absence of any form of diversity, including intellectual orthodoxy. Where I part company with those who advocate hate speech codes is I profoundly believe, again, based on actual evidence, not grand theory, but how the grand theory is actually implemented in codes and enforcement bureaucracies. What do they actually do? Uh, and they do more harm than good, specifically to the asserted goals of dignity and autonomy and equality. Uh, to me, I mean, I suppose I'm a victim, right? I'm a Jew, uh, as Felix Frankfurter said, the most despised and persecuted minority throughout history. Well, there are others who can contend for that, but we're certainly in the running. Women are considered to be inherently victims, even though we're numerically majority in many important sectors, including on, on, on campuses. Uh, and I consider it insulting to be told that I would need to be protected uh, against thoughts, that I'm inherently victimized. And if I think I am uh, have dignity and freedom of choice, then I'm told I'm a victim of false consciousness. Uh, this theory is very much in the culture as a result of uh, a segment of feminism that began in the late 70s, 80s, the Catherine McKinnon and Andrea Dworkin. And even though they, and I was part of another segment, still am, another segment uh, of feminism that founded a group called Feminists for Free Expression. And uh, even though we have won in the courts of law, and that's true with respect to hate speech codes as well, I hope you all know that they would clearly be completely unconstitutional. Every single hate speech code on campus 
that has been challenged, including the first challenge, University of Michigan, second University of Wisconsin. Uh, every single one has been struck down under the First Amendment as either unduly vague or overbroad or both. And those decisions, uh, which um, follow precedents that the U.S. Supreme Court has set most recently uh, in a unanimous decision last year, 2017, we all know how deeply fractured this court is, including on First Amendment issues. So when they unanimously reaffirm these principles. That means it is literally the core bedrock principle, as the Supreme Court has said many times. And we would literally have to be uprooting our entire First Amendment jurisprudence for hate speech codes to to be upheld. But that said, we've won the legal battles, but I agree, we are losing the cultural war. And no fight for civil liberties ever stays won. Uh, no right, no in the Constitution or a Supreme Court decision is self-enforcing. So we do need to keep educating and advocating on campus. And I think the most important message, which I uh, really tried to purvey in my book, is especially for the social justice warriors, uh, their goals, which which I support, diversity, inclusivity, dignity, um, equality, societal harmony, mental well-being for the individuals. If you accept those goals, then you have to oppose censorship because it is counter to those goals. And in my book, I quote so many leaders of minority groups. I, from the index, the person I quote more often than any other is uh, Barack Obama, for whom this was a major, major theme. Uh, minority educators have made this point. I'd like to quote one who is apparently, uh, you know, a commentator, a liberal commentator who's very popular among liberal students. Uh, Van Jones is an African-American commentator and social justice at- activist. You have to see him say it. He says it spontaneously in a TV interview. I'll try to impersonate him. Oh, I guess I can't. That's cultural appropriation. I'm sorry. Um, but I got tough talk from my liberal colleagues on campuses. I don't want you to be safe ideologically. I don't want you to be safe emotionally. I want you to be strong. I want you to be deeply aggrieved and offended and upset and then to learn how to speak back because that is what we need from you. And I think it is demeaning and degrading to say to minority students, you know, we need to protect you because you cannot speak up for yourselves. Uh, Ruth Simmons, who was the, I'll, I'll end with this quote, she was the first uh, African-American president of any Ivy League university. She was the first female president of Brown University from 2001 to 2012. Uh, she's now the president of a historically black university in, in Texas. Impeccable scholarly credentials, impeccable civil rights and human rights credentials. In her very first convocation, as President Brown, way back in 2001, they were already having these battles. Um, she said, you know, education, and this is in response to claims that we've got to be comfortable and any idea that makes us uncomfortable has to be censored. Uh, way back then, she said, I believe that education at its best is the antithesis of comfort. So if you come here 
for comfort. And then she's speaking outside. She says, go through yon iron gate. Uh, but if you believe in fighting for your dignity and equality and that of your community and the world, then stay. Thank you all so much for a great panel. And Nadine, I'm Jewish too and conservative Jewish, and I hate to break it to you, but I don't think you're on the liberal side anymore. Classic liberal (laughs) is nowhere near what liberals used to be anymore. They're just not for this exact reason of of today's panel. And I couldn't agree more with, with what you just finished with that the sort of the, the racism of low expectations that I don't, I don't as a female, as a Jew, I don't want someone telling me that I need special accommodations for being Jewish or for being female. Excuse me. I can take care of myself. How about for being a conservative? That's a pretty persecuted minority. Too. And, is, <laughs> and in Montgomery County, Maryland at that extremely. And, and that one's not so funny. You know, people have been beat up for that. But that's okay too. And in fact, in Montgomery County, I have worn my little Israel U.S. flag and my GOP elephant, and I have had people before Trump, before Obama, probably during W's time. So it was this was a while ago. Tell me in public places in Montgomery County, oh, aren't you afraid to wear that around here? And I know what they're meaning, and I look them right in the eye and I smile and I say, if I don't have the guts to say it. I don't get to be it. You're manly. (laughs) (laughs) That's exactly what I meant. That's right. That's right. And that's frankly how all Americans should be. All Americans. So that's just my observations that I wanted to share. And I'll, I'll finish with a question pertaining to this topic, which is that I was, correct me if I'm wrong, but I was surprised when the Westboro Baptist Church ruling came down that I think Scalia um, dissented, and I think he ruled... It was Alito. Oh, it was Alito. Alito. Okay, yeah. then I'm not so confused. Um, so Scalia did agree that as hateful as it is, they should still have the right to do it, right? Exactly. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Uh, let's go right here, in fact. I saw your hand first. Hi, I was wondering if the panel could talk a little bit about um, how we can address private actors trying to push people out of um, the public square for things they say or do that are hateful. A lot of the examples mentioned in the introduction were private businesses, um, actions pushed by private parties, um, and people acting um, in the public square not related to the government don't have First Amendment protections. And so how we can fight against uh, that or whether that's something we should or shouldn't do. I think it's a really serious question, and I'm not really going to give an answer, but I'm going to suggest how important it is. I was very surprised on the last time I reread John Stuart Mill's On Liberty, I discovered that that was the entire focus of his whole essay, not government coercion of speech, but peer pressure and social pressure. Uh, so certainly as a civil libertarian, I recognize that any body or group that has sufficient power 
to curtail individual liberty is a problem of concern uh, that I would want to do something about. I do have to say in this audience that my libertarian friends at uh, the Cato Institute, I've got their constitution here, uh, uh, very much say, well, it's none of the government's business to regulate the private sector. But I think we would all agree that um, uh, that we certainly, as as those people can be raising their voices, because that's what they're doing, right? They're engaging in counter-speech. Those of us who think that's inappropriate have to do the same thing. We have to agitate uh, through writing, through speaking, through pressure on the businesses, because after all, a lot of this takes place in, in, in businesses, and if they understand that they're going to lose customers uh, if they allow that kind of conduct to go forward, uh, they're attentive to the bottom line. But thank you for being conscious. And in fact, I think I would probably oppose government regulation because it would be entrenching on free speech. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't do something that it isn't a problem. Arthur and Scott on this point. I mean, I could just say a little bit on it that, uh, that, you know, 10 cowards or something like that, when they back down in favor or in the face of a mob are enough to instruct millions of people on the problems. So that, uh, I mean, when I was going through my particular controversy, I was in a lot of contact with Arthur and, uh, we, like felt a kind of social responsibility that we weren't, we're going to make sure that I'm actually going to write more on this topic now. And, uh, I'm going to publish on it. I'm going to make sure it's broadcast so that people know that there isn't a lot of backing down. So maybe one, there's an Andrew Jackson quote here. One man with courage makes a majority. And, uh, and we need more people who wear the, wear particular kinds of political t-shirts in, in context. And, uh, so you can take a lot of, uh, solace also in my particular case that I would get tons of emails from people from all, all, all around the world saying, you know, giving me support and let me know they're right behind me. And, uh, so the arrows can hit me, but that's fine. And, uh, and so I think that it's really crucial to have moral examples out there, uh, of people who don't, uh, give in. So I would assume that you all would call um, the Berkeley, you know, uh, when Berkeley stopped Ann Coulter or Yilo, Milo Yapanopoulos from speaking at their campus problematic. Uh, I'm curious if you would call the censorship of uh, Kathy Griffin and the censorship of NFL players from kneeling during the flag equally as problematic, or if you think that's different, uh, why? From a constitutional law perspective, it is different. That doesn't mean that it's uh, equally, uh, that it's not equally problematic, but many people, I've had so many people say, well, why isn't the NFL violating the First Amendment rights of the players? And, and you know, and other people know, but not everybody does, uh, that the Constitution, including the First Amendment, does not bind the private sector. I, again, as a civil libertarian, would argue when you've got a powerful entity such as a private media company or the NFL, for all practical purposes, it can suppress. And social media have more practical power than uh, all governments in the world added together. So we have to look for ways to preserve the same free speech rights and values in those contexts than we do in others. We can't use the Constitution as a tool. Uh, maybe we can use government 
government regulation as a tool, but we certainly can use, again, our voices in protest or in support. Uh, we've seen that in the private sector with, uh, I guess it was Nike who gave a contract to Colin Kaepernick and uh, ultimately I assume it believes that those who are buying uh, Nike products will therefore um, be adding their consumer weight in support of uh, a free speech right. Uh, Arthur or Scott on this point, no? Uh, I think we have time for one, well, we're up across one o'clock now. So if anyone else has any further questions, please stay behind. I'm sure our guests will be happy to accommodate. Yes, we I know we have lots and lots of questions remaining. Uh, unfortunately, I think we'd be here up to about two o'clock if we, we kept going. So uh, please stay behind. Thank you so much. Another session next week. We have another session next week.